Our reading for today um, starts in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Our second reading is from 2 John, verses 1, 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Third reading is from Hebrews. I didn't think we had that quite ready. Hebrews 1, 1 through 13. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, 
They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? All right, so uh, let's get started. So today we're going to continue on with this uh, series we've been doing called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We are on element five. If you look in Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight elements. And we are on Roman numeral five, which is Jesus, the only mediator, the only bridge, the only solution. And we're going to, uh, we are kind of studying some very introductory things about, uh, in theology, it would be called Christology or the doctrines of who is Jesus. So, um, we looked at in the introduction, we looked at why we need to be trained how to do evangelism, why even Christians need a better foundation in the gospel, uh, and all kinds of things like that. And then in the first four elements, we did, uh, that was through about message 20. This is the 24th message uh, in this series. In the first 20 messages, we just tried to basically lift our vision for who God is. Many people talk about how evangelicalism has become a very man-centered faith and with a very small view of God and how uh, you know a big a goal and need that the church has is to recapture the greatness and glory of God and understand his His omni-attributes, his divine attributes, his transcendent attributes, and so forth. And then we looked at uh, the fact that uh, we have very little doctrine of the, of the depth of man's sin. Most, a lot of uh, the most popular preachers today are kind of self-help, like you can save yourself kind of preachers. And, um, you know, the, the gospel is basically that you need to be rescued and that, uh, you can't do anything except call for the rescuer. And uh, and even he uh, lets you know uh, he's the one who draws you to the place where you really realize you need a rescuer. So now, uh, we're as we're looking at Jesus, uh, Roman numeral three there, it's basically um, Jesus in the... Uh, uh, at, at the at the mount that Herod's palace was built on, and he chose that very, very uh, carefully because he's basically saying uh, that he's the king of kings. He says the question that, that Christianity falls or rises on. Who do you say that I am? Who you think Jesus is determines everything. And so uh, it's worth our looking. We've been looking already uh, for about, uh, I guess, three weeks. This will be the fourth week we've been looking at who Jesus is, and we'll probably continue on uh, possibly another five weeks or so at just the doctrine of Christ, or again, Christology. First um, Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So he's declaring Jesus to be God and Savior, who desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, so we looked for uh, two weeks and how John in his gospel uses the term logos, and he does what the ancient Christians did. And that is instead of say, oh, we can't partake of this, you know, the rainbow because it's become a symbol of anti-Christian thinking and so forth. The, the Christians said God made the rainbow. The rainbow was uh, actually given by God as a sign of his Noahic covenant. 
and we need to reassert the meaning of everything in God's creation. We need to redeem things. Instead of run from things, we need to uh, conquer them for the glory of Christ. And so John takes the Lagos principle that was very big among the Greeks, and he uh, reinterprets it as being Christ. And so uh, all through the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus says, I am over and over and over again. I'm the... I'm the quintessential door. I'm the quintessential way. I am the quintessential shepherd and so forth. I'm the prototype shepherd, if you will. And uh, so uh, we looked at that for a couple weeks. And then last week we looked at the uh, critical, uh, we looked at eight, a list of eight critical characteristics of, of Christ's nature or Christology. If you study the attributes of Jesus Christ, we looked at the eight most important that if you have any less than those eight, you don't have the Christ of the Bible. And all false religions since the time of Christ believe that Jesus came. They, every, everyone believes in Jesus. The Muslims believe in Jesus. The pseudo-Christian cults believe in Jesus. They just don't believe in Jesus how he defined himself to be. They don't believe in the D Jesus of the Bible. So... Um, As Paul talks about, if someone comes and preaches another Jesus, they will be cut off or anathema and so forth. So um, then we looked at the crucial role of Christology. We've already quoted a few verses along that line so far today. First John 5, 12, one from last week. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The Bible makes very clear, narrow-minded statements. Jesus, when he said, seek to enter by the narrow gate or the narrow door when he called himself the door and follow the narrow way. He's not saying try harder and it's really hard to squeeze through this. He's saying there's one door, him, and you can't enter it by self-help books. You can't help it enter it by human effort. You can't enter it by any false religion. You can't enter it by any other uh, so-called savior that has existed. You can only enter it through the one narrow gate. That is Christ himself. It's that narrow. And uh, you can only walk one way, the way of Christ. And so uh, it's not a performance-based statement as we usually interpret it when we are first become Christians until we begin to understand grace more deeply. It's a grace statement. He's saying, uh, I'm giving you the door. And I... Uh, I'm calling you to, to go through that door. So uh, we looked at a lot of other scriptures about the crucial role of Christology and why it's so important. Uh, we noted uh, that all pseudo-Christian religions and all false religions have a doctrine of Jesus. He's inescapable. He's an historical figure. You know, uh, it, there were no, like these shows and these Dan Brown books about in search for the historical Jesus, there was no such thinking until modern times. It actually took a culture that didn't read much and a culture that doesn't know how to think in terms of critical, logical thinking to even begin to advance those ideas. Because the, the, it is the most documented fact of history that Jesus existed uh, at the, you know, at what we call... Uh, the first century, you know, the at zero A.D. in the year of our Lord, uh, he was born probably three or four A.D. or three or four B.C. I'm sorry, 
died approximately 30 or 33 AD, and the facts of his life are indisputable. They're some of the most well-documented facts in history. The only way you could not believe in Jesus would be to be the kind of skeptic who says, I don't believe that Abraham Lincoln existed. Now, you might have a different interpretation of the goodness or badness of Abraham Lincoln, but if you think he didn't exist, you're just not dealing with a, a rational person that has any kind of educational background and we still want to love on you and maybe we'll help you learn how to read or uh, come to know why you should believe that there is an Abraham Lincoln or something. We're not going to judge you or condemn you or hate you for it, but there really was an Abraham Lincoln, whatever you think of him. And, uh, the, you know, these whole in search of historical Jesus thing is just kind of a modern phenomena taking advantage of the fact that we've become a culture that doesn't read and a culture that doesn't study logic or logical thinking anymore. And so uh, people are gullible to hear hearing all sorts of crazy ideas because they don't actually know how to critically think and check it out. But it's on the level of absurdity uh, to, you know, the level of someone who has a poached egg for a brain or something. So, I mean, Jesus, the historical Jesus existed. The facts of his life are indisputable. It's a matter of who you're going to say he is. So let's flip over and get into today's material. Today we're going to... Uh, uh, talk about two things, Roman numerals six and seven there. Hey, Jason, if we could upgrade this light by next Sunday, that uh, it it's must have a battery that's dying or something. That would be because it's of no value at this point. And these are all the way up, I take it. Can't wait till we get new light. We have new lights. Can't wait till we do the sanctuary. They're in storage. <laughs> I can't wait till they're in the ceiling. So, um, so let's, uh, let's talk about what today's teaching, which is basically the deity of Jesus Christ in didactic biblical perspective. Now, what does didactic mean? Everybody says, well, you shouldn't use big words in modern times and so forth. I don't know. The Bible says that you actually have to have a spiritual vocabulary to understand spiritual things, and yet we must combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And it's, Paul says we do speak wisdom, a spiritual wisdom with spiritual vocabulary among those who are mature. And the goal of these teachings is to help us all start to become more mature. So you need to learn biblical vocabulary. That's what a church should be teaching you, according to the Bible. Uh, so didactic, very important word. Uh, if you're going to read scripture, didactic in scriptural usage is straightforward or plain language, teaching the doctrines or statements uh, the teachings, the doctrines, or statements that contain theological, moral, or exhortive instructions to which aesthetic and literary considerations are subordinated. Now, when we say aesthetic or, li or literary considerations, as you know, if you've been around this church uh, for the last few years, we've done, between John and I, we've probably done uh, at least more than 50 teachings on how to start to understand the literary aspects of the Bible. The Bible's filled with word pictures and parables and metaphors. It's the greatest piece of literature of all time. Uh, some of the books of the Bible in themselves, like John is one of the greatest constructed uh, pieces of literature in the entire ancient world. He, a John had become a master of the Greek language by the time he wrote that. and was a top-rated, educated writer. And several of the books, such as Matthew, John, 
Hebrews, Jude, Revelation, they assume that their audiences know the Old Testament and have read it dozens of times because they use hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. Hundreds. Not tens or twenties. Uh, so when Jesus is using his I am sayings, he, he knows his audience knows Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. And he's saying, of all the doors there are, I'm the door that the doors are made from. I'm the shepherd that all shepherds are un, come from, and so forth. So we've done a lot of teaching on how to find Christ and types and figures, and the Passover lamb, and uh, Joseph is a type of Christ, Moses a type of Christ. We've done all these uh, kind of teachings and so forth. But because uh, the plain didactic uh, explanations of Scripture are the easiest to understand. They're the easiest to access. They will be known deeply by anyone who's read their Bible through a few times. As you know, we encourage the if, if the doctrine of all Scripture, the doctrine called plenary inspiration of Scripture that comes from uh, two verses, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. You can't actually say you really believe that if you're not endeavoring to read the whole Bible on some kind of regular basis. Because if you believe that it's all the Word of God, um, you know, we have some married couples in our, I'll pick on John and Leah Gray because they know I love them. I, uh, I doubt if, uh, when, if John wrote Leah kind of a I love you note when they were courting and so forth, if Leah would go, you know, I'm just going to read, pick and choose a few of my favorite parts because I'm sure that I kind of, I grew up with these kind of love letters. I know this stuff. Uh, and, and uh, you know, why, why bother to read the whole thing? That, you know, and that it's amazing to me how few Christians I meet that have even grown up in Bible-believing Christian schools, Christian churches, Christian homes, that have never had the idea I should read the whole Bible through quite a few times. I submit to you that on your 7th to 12th time through the New Testament, if as long as you're combining that with your 4th or 5th time through the Old Testament, lights will start to jump, turn on, and your whole life will be radically changed. And uh, uh, because when you start to see the Bible in terms of major themes and a whole, and the, un the progressive unveiling of Jesus Christ, the King of God's kingdom, and the progressive unveiling of his kingdom, eternal decree purposes, and his covenants, and his sovereignty, and all the, the bigger themes of Scripture, your life will be radicalized. It'll be revolutionized. You'll, you'll be turned upside down. You'll become a new creation. So Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of thy word is truth. You know, I like football, and in football you have sums like seven, three, and two sometimes with the safety. And, uh, and uh, well, you get two-point conversions too, and you got uh, mixed extra points, so you get one. And, you know, if, if the score is 49 to 28, uh, that's the Ohio State score was yesterday, I don't think Ohio State would say, well, why don't we just forget about like five of our, our touchdowns? Be, you know, we'll just count three of them. That's enough. No, well, it wouldn't have been. So a sum, if you start taking away numbers from a sum, you don't have a sum left. 
So when the Bible says the sum of thy word is truth, it's trying to say, man, 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 man. Read the whole thing because it's all related. And the, the key, one of the first principles of biblical interpretation is that the scripture interprets the scripture. So we've done a lot of that. So all I, where I want to go today is I want to just get into some of the plain, straightforward, didactic teaching about the deity of Christ. Then over the next several weeks, we're going to uh, do some more of the plain didactic uh, teachings about other aspects of Christ, such as his manhood and so forth. Uh, if you look down at Roman numeral nine, there's a, you can, a sneak preview of some of the things we'll cover. His passion, his, his resurrection, his glorification, his coronation. I didn't put a complete list there, but uh, a representative list. So let's get into this. In John, uh, since we've been loving on John a lot in uh, this uh, past few weeks, we'll start with John. In the beginning, the, that, by the way, the Greek word there is RK, and it doesn't mean in, um, it doesn't mean like the beginning of this message. It means before all time, when God decided to create time. Okay, and he's purposely following the language of Genesis 1:1. The first baseball verse in the Bible, in the big inning. Uh, no, this bad joke, number 27. Okay. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And look at this. The Word was God. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? He literally is means this one was in the beginning. He was before all time. He's outside and above time. He's what's called transcendent. He's not a part of the creation. He made the creation. Almost all, every religion outside of Christianity worships or, and serves some form of the creation. They all do, every single one. There's not an exception to that. There can't be an exception to that because you either know and worship the creator or you will worship the creation. Because you're made in the image of God and you're made to be a worshiping person. You either receive God's law or you'll make up your own laws and you'll become legalistic and, and performance-based and self-righteous. You can't escape the fact that you're created in God's image. Everybody worships, whether it's their Lexus or their girlfriend or uh, you know their drug addiction or whatever. Everybody's a worshiper. You can't help but be a worshiper. It's just a matter of who you're going to worship. So what, what Christian freedom is, is being set free from your idols to worship the true and living God. That's what it means to be rescued by Jesus, to, to be set free from all the idols of pornography and uh, uh, being immature and wor worshiping money and worshiping position and uh, you know, trying to get too much fulfillment out of your marriage when your your husband isn't God. You might have noticed that early on, but uh, <laughs> and therefore he can't meet all the needs you're looking for him to meet if you're if you have a tendency to be codependent. And uh, what so when Christ comes into your life, he sets you free from all these things to worship him. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Is God. All things came into being through him. That's, he's just, he's summarizing Genesis 1 and 2 in that statement. So he's saying that like in, in, in uh, Genesis 1, 26, when it says 
And God said, let us, God speaking to himself with us, the one God is talking to the three persons within himself, let us make God in his image. And Genesis 1 doesn't spell out who us is. John is telling you who us always was. It was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, All things came into being through Jesus. He is the creator. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, the reason he restates it in the reverse negative is because this idea was totally revolutionary to the, to the, to the ancient world. The, uh, the Greeks and all the philosophers after Plato, all the Eastern religions, saw the creation as something evil and bad. And the Bible asserts that God made the creation, and it's good. In fact, as I often point out to single people who are courting or whatever, that one of the reasons you want to wait to have sex till marriage is because God is burying his sex. He really is. Because in the Bible, for the first uh, five days of creation, three times at the end of the day, he evaluated the day and said, it's good. But on the sixth day, when he made a naked man and a naked woman married for sexuality, then he said, it's very good. So uh, the doctrine, uh, and then the very last verse of Genesis 1 says that God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. That is is the only people, the the Hebrews and, and the Christians, were the only people in the history of the world who saw the creation as something good. All other religions think it's flawed and bad and evil and so forth, and you have to escape to being spiritual. That's why it's actually so dangerous that so much Gnosticism has become so entwined with evangelicalism in our day. Is And there's many voices crying out that we've got to uh, get, get, get on top of that. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, capital L. I provided the uh, capital uh, on life, not on light. But uh, the New American Standard gave it on just light. I don't know why. They should have done both. It's not in the Greek anyway. It's just a matter of what you know it's saying. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or overcome or overpower or master it. And the word became flesh and tabernacled. So right, right there is another clear deity statement. In other words, what he's saying is Jesus is the temple of God. And the temple of God walked among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory glory that's only in the temple of God, that can only come from the complete manifest presence of God. We beheld that glory, and he walked among us. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of, not just a little bit of grace, but full of grace and truth. Now, um, Hebrews 1, I... Can we put it on the screen somehow? Where did Jason go? Does anybody know how to? Anvesh, can you figure out how to put that on the screen for me? Let's jump down in the meantime uh, while he's doing that. So um, John 20, 28, Jesus regularly received worship. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And everyone hopefully knows the circumstances there. That uh, Do you know how to, you know what to, to do? Okay, so uh, 
The circumstances there is that Jesus' first appearance to the disciples on Sunday night of uh, or the Lord's Day, Easter, that evening in the upper room and so forth, Thomas was not there. And then Thomas said, unless I see, uh, you know, his wounds myself and place my, my hand in his side and so forth, then Jesus appears to him and shows him and, and Thomas worships him. And Jesus didn't say like every other godly character in the Bible, he didn't say, Thomas, don't do that. I'm just a man. Right? Remember when Paul and, and Barnabas first went out on their missionary journey and the snake bit Paul and he shook it off into the fire and they're all waiting for him to die because a python had bit, bit him and, and he doesn't die and so forth. Then they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas and they tear their clothes and say, don't worship us, we're just men. If Jesus accepted Thomas's worship and he's not clearly saying, I'm God, then he's actually committing a great wickedness. You can't have it either way. He's accepting worship. In Matthew 21 and Luke 19, both have to do with the triumphal entry, but one has, Matthew has to do with after the triumphal entry, when Jesus went into the temple to teach and to clear the temple and so forth. The children in the temple were doing the same thing as they had been doing in Matthew 21, 59, and in Luke 19's account. That is, they are crying out, Hosanna, which is a praise worship term. It means God saves us. He, they're declaring Jesus to be God, our Savior, by that term. And, they're, and, and uh, the Pharisees are upset. Uh, don't you hear these children saying these things? I love when Jesus, and Jesus, one of his classic answers to the Pharisees, you've got to understand who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees had doctorates from Bible college in today's parlance. They had memorized the whole Old Testament. They used to delight in being able to actually say it backward or forward. They knew every verse, and they knew uh, commentaries on it that were 10 times longer than the Scripture themselves. It'd be like an accountant actually knowing the IRS tax code. <laughs> I doubt there's anybody like that out there. Uh, maybe. He'd be... Uh, He'd be my favorite geek of all time. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you could know, know the IRS tax code, man, I'd be like, wow, you're impressive. It's 10 times the size of the Bible. And, uh, or if you knew like every doctrine of the Obamacare thing, which is 10 times the size of the Bible. Um, you, that would be amazing. So the Pharisees were this. That that and they that was their their entire identity. I don't know if you one of the first things that I noticed when I was I uh, got serious about studying. You know, I was a druggie and a flunky before I came to Christ. So I went to college in a probationary, you know, program, and I got in with this group of Christians who really studied theology and the Word. And you know, I would study on my knees at night so I wouldn't fall asleep, and I was really into getting A's and studying Greek and hours of Scripture every day and all this stuff and. And uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, early on was if in the in the sciences that don't have any relation to reality, you know, in in mathematics, in any kind of science, in any kind of engineering, there has to be no matter how bad the paradigms and the philosophies behind it are, 
there has to be some connection to reality because it's got to work. You know, in math, this equation's got to work out. But in history and sociology and psychology and philosophy and these kind of things, they don't necessarily need to have any connection to reality. And often they they don't because they're just theoretical. They're not sciences at all. They're just worldviews and paradigms and religions that people put on the facts. So one of the things I noticed early on is if you agree with the professor, you get an A. If you don't agree with the professor, you don't. (laughs) And I would actually do experiments with this. I would have people who were experts in English grammar and so forth, uh, you know, proofread my paper. And I'd uh, have people who are experts at logic go through all the logical arguments and the footnotes and so forth. And I would write a fantastic paper that disagreed with the professor and I'd get a B plus or a B minus. Then I would purposely for the same professor in the same class write a really lousy paper with spelling mistakes, grammar mistakes, undocumented things that needed footnotes and, and all kinds of logical mistakes. And, I, and if I agreed with the professor, I got an A because that whole realm is completely subjective. And so the Pharisees, they've put their entire identity in their performance-based self-righteous religion that's all full of externalism and, and how much they know. And they kind of browbeat the other people with, we know and you don't know. Look at all the different encounters with like the blind man that Jesus had. You're always like, you were born in sin. And we, they're implying they, they weren't, <laughs> is what they're implying. And that they, you know, they know all this stuff. So anyway, that, with that explanation, it, I, ho- I hope that you appreciate the sarcastic humor. But Jesus says, have you never read? Now, that is as insulting as you can get to a Pharisee. <laughs> like, didn't you ever read your Bible? <laughs> you know, when, we, when my kids were growing up, they had this joke. They liked, for some reason, because they all went to Christian schools and all this. So they always... They were like, have you ever even heard of God? And, you know, uh, it was, you know, just kind of cutting each other up or whatever. For the fun of it. Um, have you never read? I lost my place with all that explanation. Have you never read uh, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? Now, one of the things I do is I like to use the New American Standard because all Bibles have some way of making the Old Testament quotes stand out. The New American Standard uses small caps, so it's easier to see. Plus, it's one of the three best English translations, probably overall. Anyway, Luke, uh, he says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, this is the same Jesus who in the temptations in the wilderness in Matthew 4.10 said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Emphasis on only. So Jesus would be some kind of crazy schizophrenic if he's accepting worship all the time without intentionally meaning to accept worship. He's very clear about that. He's constantly accepting praise and worship and insisting that you should worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Right? All right. So we'll, we'll get back to that. And uh, we'll get to Mark 14 in a minute, but we're going to go back to Hebrews a little bit. Do I have a clicker or anything that I could go through these scriptures with? Oh, thanks. Um, even I can probably figure this out, right? Oh, yeah. There we go. All right. 
long ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> At many times and ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Actually, after we go through these next so many weeks of didactic teaching, we're going to look at that more intensely. In these last days, which is not like when Hal Lindsey novels started to be written or whatever, or, you know, the Left Behind series got written. The, in the Bible, when it's talking about the last days, in the New Testament, it's talking about the last days of Israel as the people of the kingdom of God and the, the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth and a new city of God, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, which is still coming and is the church. Okay, uh, That's what Peter says in Acts 2, by the way. He says, this is what Joel prophesied in the last days. I'll pour out my spirit on all men. Jesus uses that phrase in Matthew 23 to, des to describe the destruction of the temple that he says will happen in during this generation. So uh, anyway, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created. Now, by the way, whenever the Bible uses the term firstborn regarding Jesus, because Jesus is the only begotten son of God in that sense, it's, it's telling you that he's the heir. He's the firstborn. The firstborn was a particular position in Hebrew families. He's the heir. So over and over, it talks about him being the firstborn from the dead, but it also talks about him being the firstborn from all creation because he, he was from all eternity, Hebrews 13 and 20, the blood of the eternal covenant, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before time existed, I know we can't comprehend that, but we know it's true because the scripture teaches us. Before God created the time-space continuum, before he uttered, let there be for the first time, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, always, eternally, outside and above the creation, outside and above time, transcendently, if you will, had a, a covenant that God the Father would send God the Son to the earth to rescue man, and that God the Holy Spirit would be sent to bring man, to bring Christ a bride, and that Christ would become the heir of all creation. And then he would give everything back over to the Father. Read 1 Corinthians 15. So he's the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint, or uh, that's, uh, boy, I had a bunch of notes, but I just couldn't fit them on the page, and I probably should have printed them out separately for myself. But he, uh, that's a really rich Greek word. He's the exact expression, the exact duplication, the exact, uh, uh, duplication is a bad word. It's um, the exact expression of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, who can do that? Sam, you upholding the word universe by the word of your power this morning? <laughs> I can't even hold get my closet straightened by the word of my power. You know, I, I, can't, I can't even figure out how to tie my tie. Um. So the only reason I started wearing ties a few weeks ago is to try to improve on my hand coordination. No, <laughs> see if I can do it. Um, so, you know, think about this. You know, scientists are still baffled by what holds the atom together. Let me tell you this. It's, I'm not trying to be fancy and oh, well, like what a cool point, but you're stretching it. He, Jesus is holding every atom together this very second. Do you know that if he ceased to hold you together, you would cease to exist in an instant? He, 
Jesus created all things and he is sustaining every atom, every move of wind and nature and clouds. He is, uh, modern man has this kind of impersonal scientific view of the universe that's run by the laws of physics and the laws of nature, but a personal being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are actually making those laws of physics work every second because they exist by the creation of God and he can overcome them anytime he wants. That's why there's miracles all through the Bible because the laws of physics don't exist uh, as any kind of constraint on God. He actually created the uh, our universe with reasonable laws and so forth for man it's the glory of God to conceal a manner. It's the glory of kings to seek a matter out so that we could have a clue that there must be one creator because of all these things that seem to work together right, which is infinitely impossible. Give a, put a bunch of monkeys in a room together and give them typewriters and see how long it takes them to produce a work of Shakespeare. You know that's the that's about as likely as is that's you know that a, that a work of Shakespeare is less complex than one cell in your body and the DNA thereof and all the proteins and so forth. For which of the angels did God ever say, "You're my son"? Today I've begotten you. I've got to keep. I've got to let all the angels of God worship Him. Bible is very clear that that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. To which of the angels did he ever say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom? Another quote from the Old Testament, by the way. You've loved righteousness and so forth. You're, you laid the foundations of the earth. That's talking about Jesus. And the heavens are the work of your hands. That's Jesus. They will perish, but you remain. It's like a robe. You're the same and your kingdom will have no end. Okay. So uh, we can you can turn this off now. I, I wish I could have opened up Hebrews 1 for hour or two but uh and gotten into a lot of greek words and stuff look get into hebrews one sometime just by the way if, if you don't know how to read hebrews hebrews is one of the five or six books of the new testament that kind of assumes that the readers know everything there is to know about the old testament so take the time to look up all the quotes take the time to look up hundreds and dozens of, of biblical images and quotes from the old testament and uh, enjoy it because Hebrews, each chapter of Hebrews uh, is, is looking at a different characteristic of Christology. So Hebrews 1 is focusing on Jesus' deity. Hebrews 2, as we'll see next week, is focusing on his humanity. Hebrews 3 focuses on how he's uh, the, the prophet that Moses had predicted would come, that, that would be like him in all things, and how Jesus is greater than Moses, that Moses was a foreshadowing and a type of Christ, but Jesus is is the actual archetype of Christ. He is Christ, etc. Uh, I'm almost out of turn time, so we're going to have to just rush on. Um, Mark 14, when Jesus is on trial, this is very important. What um, if if you really want to get into this? By the way, there's a book by guy. I think his name is Frank Morris, maybe or I forget Morris something Morris. Uh, it was it's called Who Moved the Stone. He was a journalist in the 1950s very much like Lee Strobel, how the case for Christ came about and all that. 
he set out to prove that Christianity was nonsense. And uh, there's hundreds of testimonies of people who set out to do that, that have become Christians. He was one of them. He set out to prove that Christianity was nonsense, and he became a Christian and became a Jesus worshiper and a lover of God. And he wrote a very, very good uh, uh, book about the trial of Jesus called who, and, the, and the Death, Burial, and the Resurrection, and it's, about, it's called Who Moved the Stone? But he demonstrates how the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, which was mostly Sadducees and some token Pharisees, broke every law of Moses in the name of trying Jesus by the law of Moses. They broke all the laws of Moses about trials, pretty much everyone. It was a sham trial, and they still couldn't get anyone to testify against Jesus. So finally, you know, we have a thing in America called the Fifth Amendment. That comes from the Bible. Our, our, our Constitution actually used to be influenced by biblical worldview. And go read Blackstone's commentaries. Well, I can't get into all that. I'm out of time. <clears throat> Ask me about it at lunch. Uh and it was based on, it's based on the whole concept, uh, the Fifth the fifth Amendment is based on the concept that you can't incriminate yourself, which is from the Old Testament. So when they asked Jesus, tell us plainly, they couldn't get anybody to agree or any witnesses against him or trip him up in anything he'd said. Now, you could find lots of things I said that you could trip me up in for just this week. And uh, I've had several things I said this week that, uh, you know, I had to take back or ask forgiveness for or change my mind or whatever. And uh, it's like that every week, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, but they couldn't find anything. So finally they said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? I mean, he's been telling, calling himself the son of man, which is from Daniel seven. He called himself the son of man 38 times in the book of Luke already. And if that, you know, like that's the messianic title that they were expecting the, the, the Christ to be called. And, uh, so he says, I am. So guess what? Even Mark and the other Gospels have some I am statements. He's saying, I am that I am. The, the accusation against Jesus at his trial was that he was claiming to be God. That's what he was put on trial for. So this nonsense of false cults and stuff that Jesus isn't God is just really absurd, actually. Uh, he says, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man. Using Daniel 7 on purpose, he's saying, you'll see the Messiah sitting at the right hand of power, in some translations, or mighty one coming in the clouds of heaven, clearly quoting Daniel about the Messiah. And then they, they get up, they tear their robes, and they said, you've heard the blasphemy, let's kill the guy. And uh, which is breaking the law of Moses, because you can't incriminate yourself. Um. Oh, boy, I wish I could do the rich young ruler, but I'll get stoned to death if I do. Uh, maybe I'll do that one next week. Uh, uh, then the last few ones, by the way, just in case I don't go back to Luke 18 next week. Um, uh, boy, I wish I had time to do that one. You can see me at lunch about it if you want. Um, the Greek word theos, uh, the, the main word for God, is normally in the in the in the epistles of the New Testament, used of God the Father, but it is used of God the Son several times, and I've given you a few of them there. Amen.